Good evening, uh, Calvary Chapel family. We're so happy you're here and joining us with a Good Friday service. Um, this is going to be a, a little bit different than our usual format. We're going to do several worship songs and then examine the different trials of Jesus, his movements uh, during the evening from Thursday into Friday, leading up to his crucifixion and in between some of these uh, readings that we'll have and uh, teachings. Uh, we're going to sing some worship songs together. Uh, also, at the end of uh, our time here together, we're going to take communion to communion. So uh, if you uh, don't have it with you, you're going to want to run and grab uh, a cup of juice and a cracker, and we'll do that at the end. Now, uh, Sunday, we're going to have our regular uh, time, well, of course, it'll be Resurrection Sunday, and we're going to have our regular service uh, Sunday at 10.30 a.m., but on that day, later in the afternoon, we're not going to have any student leadership meeting or audience with the king that evening because uh, we're going to stay home, obviously under uh, the orders, but also just be with our family and, uh, uh, you know, partake in family worship if, uh, if the Lord directs you or whatever he has for you. So uh, let's begin our, our uh, Good Friday service, and uh, let's do it by uh, bowing our heads in prayer. So Lord, we come here uh, this evening uh, just thankful and grateful and humbled by your love and mercy and grace towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son Jesus for us, and we're reconciled in him, Lord, uh, by his blood. We're so thankful. And as we think about and um, discuss and talk about, Lord, all the things that you accomplished on this night, on this day, your death, Lord, for our sins, and then Sunday coming out of the grave and being alive. This weekend, Lord, uh, as we remember you, may you just fill us afresh so that you'd even give us the grace to celebrate uh, properly and accordingly. Lord, may this whole weekend be honoring and pleasing to you, and we give it unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ashamed, I hear my mocking 
Thank you so much, worship team, to prepare our hearts to examine something that's kind of an unusual thing to examine, Good Friday, and uh, all of uh, those things that uh, go with Good Friday, calling it good, (laughs) and yet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, bore in Him the sins of the world on the cross and died a horrible death. For us, And we want to examine what it is that happened that day and what it, what it means for us as we live here in the year 2020. He did it all those years ago. So the first question we want to come to and talk about is, why did Jesus come to earth? What is it that Jesus came to do? Why is this story so important and makes it the most important excuse me, story that's ever told. It's the high point, the biggest day or weekend in history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we examine the Scriptures, we find Jesus in the Gospels telling us, giving us hints, and then on the night in which he was betrayed as he instituted communion, telling us why he came. Here it is. Listen to this. In Luke 19, when Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, you remember this? Jesus said this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came for the lost. And also, remember in the Scriptures, in Matthew 20, as he's talking to the disciples and how they should live their lives. He says this in verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to do what? And to give his life as a ransom for many. And also in John chapter 12, while calling people to repent of sins and believe on him for eternal life, Jesus again talked to us about why he came to the earth. And in verse 47 of that chapter, he says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world, but what? He came to save the world. 
Listen to this. Paul, in Galatians 4, as he had spent time with Jesus in the desert and was taught by Jesus, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, says this in his letter to the Galatians. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, chapter 4, verse 4, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons or as daughters. We come in to the family of God, in other words, through Christ. And he goes on, and because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, here it comes, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul also tells it very plainly in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world, what to do? What? He says it. To save sinners, of whom I am chief, Paul said. And John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, in John chapter 1, verse 19, says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said what? Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle John said this in quite possibly uh, the verse right after the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. He said this, For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Well, Jesus Himself tells us on the last night, the Lord's Supper... The last night before his crucifixion, you know the story. He's in the upper room, and in Matthew 26, verse 26, he says this, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. What for? Jesus says it right here. For the remission of sins. And we know in other places, early in the Bible in Leviticus and also in the book of Hebrews, it says that there's life in the blood and that in Hebrews it says uh, there's no forgiveness of sins without the Uh, or there's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. And Jesus came, he tells us plainly, to forgive our sins. But so that begs the question. And I wonder if we talk about this enough in the American church. Well, we're going to talk about it tonight. And that's this. Sin separates us. There's something cataclysmic that sin has done. And we're just going to look at it here for a minute. Who are we, all of us, as we're born into this world? What are we in the eyes of God? Well, the Bible tells us plainly, in Romans it says, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. In Psalm 143, David wrote this, No man living is righteous before you, speaking to God. No man is righteous before you. And then in Psalm 14, how about this? They have all turned aside. They have become corrupt. There there is no one who does good. No, not one. 
This is another famous verse that almost all of us are going to know in 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what is sin, and why is it important that we examine sin? Well, see, in the American church often, we talk about grace and mercy and wealth and prosperity, and yet we back away from what the Bible tells us about ourselves. And that's where that, that is that we're sinners. So what is sin? Here's a definition. Failing to uh, meet or conform to God's moral law in our acts, in our attitudes, and in our nature. 1 John 3, 4 calls sin lawlessness, being without law. Romans 3 tells us that there's this law of God for the Jew and that those who've never heard of the law of God have a law written on their conscience, every other person besides a Jew, a Gentile. And so we all know that there's a standard, God's glorious standard for our lives, and yet we've fallen short of that standard, whether through the law or through conscience Romans chapter 1 through 3 indicts all of us. We're all guilty before God because we haven't met or conformed to God's moral law perfectly in act, attitude, or nature. Well, the consequences of sin. What are the consequences of sin? Well, it's very harmful. It's painful. It's destructive. How about this one, the first one, and the the most serious? Sin separates us from God. The Bible says, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with the darkness in 2 Corinthians 6? Or in Isaiah 59, your iniquities, your iniquities have separated you from God and separated me from God. So we have a problem. What else does sin do? It separates from God, but it also enslaves us, those who are sinners. It it makes us people who are slaves to sin. Do you remember this? Jesus said this in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, just paraphrasing. Out of your hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Greed, malice, deceit, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. And all of these come from inside of us and defile us and eventually come out of our mouths. We're enslaved by sin. There's something wrong inside, and we know it. If we're honest with ourselves, we know it. In fact, Jeremiah uh, sums it up perfectly in the 17th chapter. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You know what I grew up believing? I grew up believing we were all basically good. That's what men told me. People told me. Teachers told me. And yet, that's not what the Bible teaches. As we examine the claims in the Bible, we see not only is God glorious and awesome and wonderful, but that man is not. They've fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So it says to us that we 
need a Savior. In fact, if you look in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, you can see the deeds of those who have been enslaved with sin, which is all of us prior to coming to know Him. What else does sin do? It alienates us from God. It enslaves us. But it also creates conflict and alienation from others. Why do you think there's so much dysfunction in families or among friends or so-called friends or between people who work together? There's conflict everywhere. And the Bible says that we are to, the highest and greatest thing that we can do is love God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors and ourselves. And yet there's all this conflict and separation between people. In fact, some of you maybe, even watching right now, have had conflicts in your family, grudges that have been held, maybe for years. So as I started this, Jesus told us this. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. In order to get back to God or come back to God or have that gulf separated between God's moral standard or his, his standard and where we've fallen, we need a Savior. And that's what the story of the Bible is all about. By the way, how did sin come in through the world? Well, Romans 5 tells us in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and death spread to all men because all have sinned. We're all sinners once again. And so tonight, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask the worship team here to sing another worship song. And then we're going to examine the last night of Jesus' life into the next morning uh, leading up to the crucifixion. And we're going to talk about why that's so important, and what that means for us. Is there hope for us? Is there a, a, a cure for this restlessness, this, this dread we feel about life, this unsettledness that we have in our hearts without God in it? Is there an answer? Well, my response to that is, of course, it's Jesus. One more thing before we sing this song, and there's a verse in Hebrews that I want you to keep in mind as we're uh, running through the trials of Jesus Christ and all the agony and the tough things that he endured on the night in which he was betrayed and he ministered this or administered this new covenant instituted the Lord's Supper and then moved into the garden where he was praying and drops of blood were falling from his forehead, the Bible tells us. I want you to, I want us to remember this. What are we to do? We're to look unto Jesus, Hebrews 12 tells us, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, despising the shame, but, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, his work in getting us back to God, golfing that separation, bringing us from here to there, it's finished. Well, let's look at how that happened and 
remember this. These events on the last night of Jesus' earthly life weren't a bad story that went awry. Like, like the, 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 the authorities who were putting Jesus on trial weren't in control. Jesus was in control. I just read it to you. He endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had these people on trial, and they didn't even know it. So we're going to sing this song, prepare our hearts, and we're going to work our way through the trials of Jesus Christ. Where your blood was shed for 
Well, as I told you at the beginning, we are at the end of tonight. We're going to uh, take communion. And I'm reminded of uh, 1 Corinthians 11:26. For as often as you eat this bread, the scriptures say, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so we're charged tonight, aren't we, to proclaim the Lord's death. We're to think on it, to live it out, and to understand the implications of it. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to move through the trials of Jesus going from Thursday into Friday morning, and we're going to start with the first trial 
often overlooked in John 18, verse 12 through 14, and also verse 19 through 23. Now, this happened sometime around 1.30 a.m. to 3 a.m., somewhere in that uh, uh, time frame. And here's what it says, the Word of God, starting in John 18, verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And now skipping down to verse 19, it says this, The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine, and Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I, am always, or I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Uh, indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if, well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, who's this Annas? This Annas is, as it mentioned, the father-in-law of the current high priest of the Jews, Caiaphas. But Annas had maintained power. Even though he was out of office, he was very powerful, and he was kind of the uh, uh, the one who pulled the strings, so to speak. And so uh, the detachment of troops and the captain, the officers, knew who really was in power. And so they took him to Annas's house first. And here we see what happened and uh, the wise way in which Jesus answered him. And uh, uh, Annas, though, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Notice, after a long night of no sleep, a long day of no sleep, and he had been in the garden previously where he was arrested, where he was arrested in the garden. He's brought over across the Kidron Valley and up to the uh, area where Annas, the former high priest, was, and he received his initial abuse. That's trial number one. But as alluded to at the end of that verse, there's a second trial that took place. Seven in total, some say six, some say seven. I'll tell you the uh, difference here at the end. But the second trial uh, is found in uh, all of the Gospels, but I'm going to read the, one, the portion from Mark 14, starting in vi- verse 53. This is the second trial. This is the one uh, before Caiaphas in his house with others who belong to the Sanhedrin. Here it goes. Verse 53 of Mark 14. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Verse 56, for many, catch this now bore false witnesses against him, or witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Now, we know from the Old Testament that when there is 
these sorts of major uh, breaches of the law for which people are being charged, there has to be the testimony of two or more witnesses. And here, notice, Jesus was innocent. Many bore false witness. They couldn't even contrive a story against him. And there's many false and illegal things that they did according to their law. For instance, trying Jesus at night, as we see. That was not allowed for such an offense as this or for such an indictment as this. How about this as you continue on in verse 57? Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, "Um, uh, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? Remember, um, a sheep before its shearers in Isaiah 53, 800 or so years prior to the time of Christ, written 800 years or so prior to the time of Christ, indicates a sheep before its shearers is silent or answers nothing. And here he answered nothing. Was it these men testify against you? Or what is it these men testify against you? Verse 61, but he kept silent and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? I am, which was the name for God in the Old Testament and always, the great I am. And he says, I am equating himself with God. And you will see the Son of Man, a messianic title from Daniel 7.13, sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Before, he had avoided some of these questions, but now he's uh, laid these uh, answers out there for full display for all of them to know. Jesus is in control. Then the high priest, in verse 63, tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they condemned him. They all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him. Can you imagine the treachery and the torture and the shame of being spit on? And then they blindfolded him and they beat him and they said to him, prophesy, and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. This happened probably sometime between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., and he's been humiliated here and blindfolded, and he answers only what he wants to answer. He answers only what's prudent and what glorifies the Father as he's blindfolded and beaten and made fun of. That's trial number two. And now we come to the third trial. This happened sometime 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. before the elders, the scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin council, similar to like a Supreme Court, but with many more members, 70 plus one. There's this uh, a trial is found in three of the Gospels. I'm going to read to you from the Luke account found in chapter 22, chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. Again, sometime around 
5 to 6 a.m. in the morning. As soon as it was day, verse 66 says, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together. And they led him into their council, saying, If you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am the name of God. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. This happened again around 5 to 6 a.m. He's been through three trials. He's been up all day. He's been abused and bloodied and beaten. These are the trials before the Jewish rulers. The second part, after we worship in song here, the second half of these trials are before non-Jewish tribunals. And we'll examine them as we prepare our hearts to continue learning and growing and seeking as to what Jesus did and accomplished for us. Above all powers, above all keys, above all nature and all created things, above all the wisdom and all the ways of men, you were here before the world began. Above all treasures of the earth well, there's no way to measure what you're of the earth and there's 
perfect song to sing here as we continue on with the trials of Jesus on the night before he was crucified and into the next morning or, or the morning of uh, the time that he was crucified. And uh, he thought of us, uh, the cross that was set before him, joy. It was joy in the cross that was set before him, and that joy is us. Jesus was in control during these trials. So as we continue on, we head into trial number four. These are found in all four Gospels, but I'm going to read to you from the account in the book of John, chapter 18, verses 28 through 37. The word of the Lord is this, in verse, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early morning. It was early morning. Sometime, most people believe, between 6 and 7 a.m. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And Pilate then went out to them and said, well, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now, you should know who Pontius Pilate was. He's from Rome. He's a Roman. He was the governor of the area, that portion of the world. Rome sent him out. He lived mostly on the sea, in the Mediterranean Sea, but during certain times he would come and, uh, into Jerusalem and made sure peace was maintained and his soldiers and army were doing the right things. Without going into too much detail, Pilate had had two strikes against him concerning the Jewish people and Rome, and he was on shaky ice, not solid ground. So he goes out to them and says, Hey, what accusations do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. An evildoer. Get, get it? Verse 31. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. And therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Why? Because the Romans were 
uh, over or dominating this portion of the world, and they had stripped that right from the Jews, and they were the ones who were to administer death sentences now. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, they say, verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying uh, by what death he would die. And he had said that earlier. See, Jesus was in control. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? And he answered, Jesus answered him, verse 34, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Even up to his death, Jesus was provoking people to spiritual truth. May we be people who provoke others unto spiritual truth and get rid of the vain or empty talk that dominates or is so prevalent in our conversations. Here, Jesus provoking even the one who was sentencing or going to sentence him to death unto spiritual truths. 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered and said, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, Check it out. I find no fault in him at all. None. Zero. By the Romans, he was found not guilty. The Jews couldn't get their stories right. And here, Pilate finds no guilt, but now another trial, a very interesting trial. This one's only found in Luke in the 22nd chapter. Luke, the 20, uh, or excuse me, the 23rd chapter, starting at verse 6, the fifth trial. There's another person who comes on the scene. 6. Verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked, the, uh, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the same time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see him, uh, to see some miracles done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they'd been at enmity with each other. What's this all about? Well, uh, there were these puppet rulers of the areas of Israel. They were divided into fourths. And they were called tetrarchs, fourths. And one of them was this Herod who came from the Herod dynasty. The ones who had tried to kill Jesus when he was a young boy. And now, knowing 
Pilate couldn't uh, uh, convict or uh, found no fault in this man, tries it for a way out, sending him to Herod, this one who would have uh, uh, rule over the area of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, where Jesus was raised. But as it says here, uh, just as we've seen with all the other trials, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees came alongside and vehemently accused him, but they could find nothing. This took place around 7 a.m., and now he move, we move on to the sixth trial. Again, in all four versions of the gospel, we're going to read from the Matthew um, portion. You find it in the 27th chapter, verses 15 through 23. Follow along with me, Matthew 27, verses 15 through 23. Now, at the feast of the uh, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished, and at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas, a notorious criminal, or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, speaking of Pilate, sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of you two do you want me, or which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they all said to him, Let him be crucified, which is very interesting. It's a Roman punishment, not a Jewish punishment. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could, no, uh, uh, could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our, on our children. His blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged, scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Such a skipping over of something that's so awful. Jesus was scourged right here. They took him and tied him to a pole and stretched his back out and took a cat of nine tails leather end, just a small little whip with a leather, uh, leather uh, uh, whip portions, and at the end of the uh, fingers of that leather would be balls, st stones that would hit the back of Jesus and that would make it real tender, and then they would have sharp bone on other uh, of the cattails that would like tenderize, you know, beat his back so that it was so soft and the Bone would grip and rip it out, and so he was beaten and beaten close to death. 
In this trial here, he's back before Pilate and he tries to release him and just, yet it doesn't happen. And Jesus was scourged and marred. The Bible tells us in Isaiah, in a prophecy, he was beaten beyond recognition. Well, uh, trial number seven, I told you I'd tell you of this. Trial number seven, I read to you. It's after uh, Pilate has said, there's nothing I can do with him and wipes his hand of him. The people keep on and say, let him be crucified. And some people consider that another trial. Some don't. Some just think it's six trials. Nonetheless, this is what happens. Jesus is now going to be led away. We'll talk about that in a minute, where he's going to be crucified in a very public place with a mocking sign that turns out to be real or true. The king of the Jews is being crucified. So let's worship one more time and prepare our hearts for what's coming in the story. Oh, it's always hunger 
this one one more time. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men. And so uh, now we get to the early morning. I'm just going to give you a few of the um, uh, Friday morning timeline, the timeline of events after these trials. Approximately 8 a.m., Matthew 27, and all the rest of the Gospels tells us Jesus is led away to Calvary. You can read that story, and that 9 a.m., the third hour, Jesus is crucified on the cross, Mark and Luke tell us. We know this in Mark 15, that the soldiers cast Lot for his clothes. At 10 a.m. or so, Jesus is insulted and mocked. 11 a.m., Jesus has an interaction with the criminal uh, that's beside him. Today, you'll be with me in paradise and also... Jesus speaks to Mary and John. 12 noon, the sixth hour, darkness covers the land, Mark 15 tells us. 1 p.m. or so, Jesus cries out to the Father. 2 p.m., he cries out, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit, and he dies. And as we think of this, we just want to remind you he made seven statements from the cross. I've referred to them, but I'm going to give them to you now. The first one in Luke 23 is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Think of it. He's more concerned with their salvation and forgiveness than he is for the torture and the pain that they're inflicting upon him. In statement two, he says in Luke 23, I tell you the truth to the criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. Statement three, he says to his mother, dear woman, here's your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. When people come into the family of God, they have a real family by the blood of Christ. And just even if you're out there and you've had a rough family or a tough family, Praise God if you've had a good family, a a representative family of all that God should be to us. But if you've had a tough family, know this. There's a father who loves you and he welcomes you into his family by the blood of his son. In statement four, he says, Matthew 27, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The horror of taking on and being or having the sins of the world imputed to him at the cross, and the Father pouring out his divine justice and wrath against the sin that you and I committed, that was imputed to Christ at the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Worse torture, being out of fellowship with the Father than even the physical torture. And in statement five, he says, I thirst 
in John 19. Of course, fully God and fully man. Statement six, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23. And then he says, it is finished, as the last statement in John 19, to telestai. That great phrase that the masterpiece was over, whether it was a piece of art or literature or music. Here, Jesus conducted or completed the transaction that was sheer and utter spiritual perfection on our behalf. And having given you all these statements, I'm going to go back to statement number four. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what, what a rabbi would do, a teacher, instead of having chapter and verse like we do of the scriptures, he would uh, say the first bit of a scripture so that his students can go and refer to the piece of scripture that he wants to teach from. And here in statement number four, uh, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a direct reference there to Psalm 22, written by David 1,000 years prior to the time that Jesus lived. A time when David thought he was forsaken by the Lord. Interesting, the Lord was never closer to David. At that time that David thought he was forsaken by the Lord, the Holy Spirit was using David to pen the words that his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would say on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we see here these seven statements of Jesus from the cross. They're all important. And this season, as you're traveling through the scriptures, I would commend you to meditate on these and think on these. They're beautiful in sermons in themselves. And so we're going to worship again. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what his death means for us. For every sin and sinner's curse For every sentence we His body beaten, bruised, he 
For all 
Well, let's try and pull this all together now. Let's, what does this matter? What does it mean? We talked about the fact that we're all sinners. We're all sinners, and uh, there's none righteous. There's no, not one. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, and yet now we come to this Good Friday. What's this pastor talking about? What are these people talking about? Why are we reading of these different trials, and uh, what does it mean for us. Well, there are several places in the Bible that explain what the death of Christ did for us. Most specifically, I would take you to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. If you have time and you have your Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to see it with your own eyes, that you would turn there and read this with me. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 says this, Starting in verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me and you and us. We're all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. For scarcely, verse 7 says, for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what he was doing on Good Friday. I read it to you. Uh, On the Thursday night before, on the night before, as he's instituting the Lord's Supper, he's saying, I'm pouring out my blood. I'm signing my name in a new covenant in blood for the remission of sins. He died for us, Romans 5, 8 tells us, while we were yet sinners, but then going on in verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Let's stop there. What's justified mean? Justified means declared, excuse me, declared not guilty, like a judge would with a gavel. In God's courtroom, spiritual courtroom, We come in as guilty sinners, but we have one who pays the penalty for us, Jesus, who in another book is actually called our advocate, our defense counsel. He comes in and pays for us. No attorney would pay for us here on earth, our uh, penalty, but our Lord did it. He did it by his blood, and now God comes down and calls us not guilty. All our sins are taken away are atoned for. God's justice and wrath is satisfied at the cross so that he could say, your sins, past, present, and future, you're declared not guilty. They've been wiped out. If you follow along with me in Romans 5, verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we're saved or we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Look at this. Reconciliation now, by his death and resurrection, we'll talk about that Sunday. Reconciliation where and with whom? With God the Father. 
we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And God's nature, his holiness demands that justice be served or poured out on sin. And the end of the law or breaking the law is death. And you and I had a penalty to pay, but one which we couldn't even pay. We weren't the spotless lamb that God required, but Jesus was fully God, fully man, able to bring man's hand together with God, reconciliation. The hand of God and the hand of man, reconciliation. So what does Jesus' death on the cross do? Well, it does many things. It, we, we've been declared justified by the blood. We're reconciled back to the Father. It says in John 10, he laid his, down, or laid his life down for us. It's the greatest act of love, John 15. He died to sins. He died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. The sins of the world were imputed to him at the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He finished the atonement, John 19, 30. And he reconciled all who come to him, Jew or Gentile, that side of the tracks, this side of the tracks, this color, that color, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And many other things. He canceled out our sin debt. He brought in the new covenant. He redeemed us, which means brought us back and put us back into life and to live it the way in which it was intended to be lived. You could look that up in 1 Peter 1. He was the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 2.2. And if you don't know what propitiation is, study it. Think about that. He bore our wrath. Some of you remember a lightning rod. Some of you are too young for that, but some of you remember it. We used to put them on top of our houses so that the lightning would come and the rod would take it instead of our roof and then demolish our roof. Jesus took the wrath of God so that we don't have to. He's the propitiation for our sins. And so, as we come, we're going to now prepare our hearts for communion. All of these things that Jesus has done, but it comes by this. These things become true of you when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. We talked about it last week in our sermon. You can't just intellectually know that Jesus is the Christ or even emotionally know, but you must submit your will, everything you are, to who he is and count on his finished work at the cross and his resurrection, which we'll talk about on Sunday, for your salvation. It requires an agreeing with God or an agreement with God that you are a sinner. That's called repentance. And that you turn and walk towards him and ask him to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior and to fill you with new life and move on out from there. And so as we come, I'm asking you there at home to get out the cup of juice and a cracker. And if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you're welcome to take communion with us. If you have never surrendered your life to Christ, you shouldn't do it, but you can do it if you'll just give your life over now. But let's prepare our hearts in worship and song, and I'll come back and we'll administer the communion.
Is that 
that you are. And now as we've been uh, preparing our hearts to uh, take communion here, we're reminded of what the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse uh, 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Many of you here may be tired of me marveling at this scripture, and yet, on the night in which he was betrayed, the night before his death, as he instituted this, I want you to never forget that he took the bread, and look what he did. Don't skip by it. Don't skip by it. It'll tell you something about who you are. He broke the bread, and he gave thanks. It's almost too hard to believe. But it's our Lord, and he had this joy set before him as he went to the cross. He's giving thanks because... The Father had sent him on this mission to forgive sins by the shedding of his blood. And as he instituted this supper, he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And go ahead and take of the cracker. verse 25 as we continue on says in the scriptures there in the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me go ahead and take of the juice So pray with me, would you, before we move on? I'm going to pray that if anyone's there who would uh, want to surrender their life to Christ, that they would pray a prayer of repentance now, that they're a sinner, that they need a Savior, Jesus, that God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that when we ask And repent. We believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's he's everything who he said he was. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, we shall be saved. Saved from what? Eternal separation from God. We'll come back to him. We'll be reconciled to him. And we'll live with him forever. And so, as I bow my head, you bow your heads with, it, with me, and let's pray together. And if there's anyone there that prays that prayer or wants to do that, I know this is kind of different over the technology, they'd contact us and we would share the joy in what you've done. If there's anything else we can do, uh, please see us. 
call us, talk to us, email us, and we'll uh, happily respond to you too. But let's do this. Having taken this communion, let's pray together, and then let's finish out this night by worshiping in song as we go forward, looking forward to the day and the significance of our Lord and Savior's resurrection on Sunday. Pray with me, would you? Lord, we come here and we do. We lift up your name and we thank you. We're eternally grateful for all that you've gone through and all that you've done and all that you've accomplished and continue to accomplish and will accomplish in the future, Lord. Lord, if there's anyone out there, we're praying for them, that they would admit they're a sinner, like we've all admitted, that we need a Savior. That's you. That because we're a sinner, there must be blood shed to satisfy your justice and wrath. And that blood was shed at the cross. And we're, we can come and count on that sacrifice, that once-for-all sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, so that we can come back to you in reconciliation and commune with you forever. And Lord, as we move forward here, we thank you that you did die on our behalf. We remember all the things that you, you've done. And Lord, as we move towards Sunday, we thank you that you rose again and gave us new life, defeated death, conquered death. And we look forward to celebrating with you and for you on that day as well. Lord, we pray that this service was pleasing in your sight and in your ear. And we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We were waiting without hope, without light Till from heaven you came running As there was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory To a cradle in the dirt Take you die and pray.
that stone was moved for good for the lamb had conquered death and the dead rose from their tombs and the angels stood in awe for the souls of all who'd come to the father are restored and the church of christ was born Truth of all shall not kneel and shall not faint. It's by his blood and in his name. In his freedom I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. And praise the Father.
blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we couldn't ever afford. Our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. God bless you guys, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to Sunday, should the Lord tarry, and worshiping with you. If there's anything we can do for you, please contact us, but we just want you to know that uh, God loves you so much, and so do we. So God bless you. We'll see you soon.